week or or just due to the time that's passed, three years or so, let me reintroduce Steve to us. He is serving currently as an associate pastor and an elder at Grace Fellowship Church in Pretoria, South Africa. He's married to Lauren. They have three children, Levi, Luke, and Eleanor. Steve was here in Kansas City at TES from 2017 to 2019, and it was during that time that he was actually called back home, South Africa's home for Steve. He was called back home to serve with Joel James, a longtime friend of Rick and ministry partner there, to serve at Grace Fellowship Church as an associate pastor. So we've been edified during Steve's visit here. His, your visit to see family, right? Lauren's family is here in Kansas City. This is where Lauren is from. So they've been busy seeing family, but he spent a lot of time with us at the men's Bible study. He was at our elders meeting, been spending time with lots of you. And it's been really edifying to hear about ministry in South Africa and to be edified in Steve's recounting of the Lord's work there. And today we have the opportunity to be edified by the exposition of God's word. So with that, please help me welcome Steve Collin. Thanks, brother. How's it? That means hello, by the way. Uh, Rick mentioned in the first service that he had uh, 27 pages of notes. I've got 91. But don't worry, the font is like 28, so it's going to be okay. <laughs> Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 19. If the book of Revelation is all about the unveiling the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, which it is, then verses 11 through 21 of this chapter spells out the pinnacle, the climax, the Kilimanjaro of this book. The one who has ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, who has been seated at the Father's right hand, is the only one worthy to take and open the scrolls in chapter 5 of this book, this simply means that the eschatological day of the Lord has begun as he unleashes the seal, the trumpet, and the bold judgments upon the kingdom of Antichrist. At the beginning of this 19th chapter, there's thunderous rejoicing in heaven because of the announcement of God's final act to completely destroy the lost world human empire. Now it's time for the king to return and take back the earth from the usurper, establishing his kingdom. Just by the way, this climactic event, which we call the blessed hope, this will be attended by great mourning, because the time for grace and mercy is over. Jesus came the first time to pay for sin, willingly giving up his own life on the cross, but he comes a second time not to pay for sin, but to punish sinners. One writer said the world likes a complacent, reasonable religion, and so it is always ready to revere some soft image of Jesus, some meager, anemic Messiah, and to give him a moderate, rational homage. However, these verses powerfully reveal and unveil the Lord of glory, not as the lamb or bridegroom, which he is, of course, but as a conquering king descending to do battle against the beast and his armies. So with that in mind, let's uh, read from verse 11 through the, the end of the chapter. John writes, 
And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The question of all questions throughout all the ages has always been, when will Jesus Christ return? When is he coming back? Believers have lived and died in anticipation. Phonies have prophesied and re-prophesied and then re-prophesied in deception. And unbelievers have sneered at this future reality in every single generation. In fact, before we even delve into the stunning details of this account before us, let's just turn for a moment by way of introduction to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3, as the apostle responds to the scoffing questioning which lingers in the hearts of false teachers and unregenerate men and women. 2 Peter 3, have a look at verse 3. Peter says, Know this First of all, that in the last days, that is the time between the first and second advent, he goes on, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, meaning that they're doing this because they do not want judgment for their sin. The beginning of verse 4, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? 
By questioning the promises and integrity of God in both the Old and, by implication, New Testaments, these scoffers were corroding the hope of true believers and laughing at the idea of divine accountability at the same time. This hasn't changed. Whether we're dealing with the repercussions of false prophets and their silly predictions or Christ-rejecting pagans, the mocking has not stopped, has it? For example, the famous musician Elton John said it this way in one of his popular songs. He said, and all this talk of Jesus coming back to see us, mm, you couldn't fool us. That's a scoffer. Start of verse 4 again. Where is the promise of his coming? How do we respond to that? Well, Peter does so by answering the main objection posed in the middle of verse 4. Have a look. He says, For ever since the fathers fell asleep, the fathers probably in reference to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, ever since they fell asleep, all just continues as it was from the beginning of creation. The apostle then provides a powerful reputation by pointing out two cataclysmic events in the past Namely, God's creation of the world in six literal days, and along with his flooding of the world in the time of Noah. And so, looking back in biblical history is one sure way to answer the sneering question in question. But so is looking forward to the future. And I would argue that Revelation chapter 19, to which you can now turn back, is one of the best places to go. Why? Because verses 11 through 21 provides the most concise description and fulfillment of the promise of His coming. This is it. And this is all designed to do two things. Firstly, to encourage the saints, to provide hope for the saints. But secondly to produce the kind of fear in the unsaved, in the mockers, that can only express itself in two non-words, and you know them, uh-oh, uh-oh. One author makes the point that a century ago, most people believed that history was progressing inexorably toward a man-made utopia. The Industrial Revolution, the march of scientific discovery, and the increasing pace of social reform seem to augur nothing but brighter days ahead. Today, however, two world wars, innumerable regional, civil, and national wars, countless acts of terrorism and senseless violence, and the nearly complete collapse of moral values, well, that makes such a rosy optimism seem quaintly naive. The Bible teaches that things will be wonderfully better, but only after they become unimaginably worse. And let me just say that there will be nothing worse for unrepentant mockers than the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is when fantasy in their minds becomes an inescapable and terrifying reality. Yet at the same time, this is what every single true believer throughout the history of the world, including the creation itself, has longed for with holy anticipation. Now, in order to see the structure of the section, I want you to notice John's repeated phrase, and I saw, the beginning of verse 19, sorry, 11, and I saw heaven opened. 
Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. Verse 19. And I saw the beast. What's going on here? Well, if you're taking notes, this really just represents the outline. Three escalating stages in the return of the conquering king. We'll call number one the unimaginable arrival. Number two, an unconventional supper. I'll explain that when we get there. And then number three, an unstoppable conquest. So let's begin with the unimaginable arrival. And I say that because no one in human history could ever truly imagine this kind of entrance. We read verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. Not to let John in this time, but to let Jesus out. At his first coming, he sat on a donkey. As John is going to go and behold a white horse, which he comes on the second time. This white horse reveals his purity through and through, representing promises full of integrity, justice, peace, righteousness, John MacArthur notes, as the dramatic scene unfolds, John stands transfixed, his attention riveted on the majestic, regal, mighty rider. Jesus, the one who ascended to heaven where he has been seated at the Father's right hand, is about to receive the kingdom that the Father promised him. But before that even happens, we, I want you to notice John's majestic description of this conquering king, starting with his trustworthiness. The apostle writes in the middle of verse 11, And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. So not only is he worthy to take the seals in chapter 5, but he's also trustworthy in fulfilling his promises and is the true Messiah announced from ancient times. He's the covenant keeper. The mocker says that he's not faithful and true. The inerrant word of God says the exact opposite. The one who is the way and the truth and the life is called faithful and true. Indeed, as God, a very God, he cannot and will not lie. In other words, we can trust him. Every single promise made in both testaments concerning the second coming will be fulfilled. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. You can believe that or you can mock that. And by the way, indifference falls into the latter category. And all that is left to say to you is, "Uh oh. I say that because of the next characteristic that John points out, and that is his justice. We read at the end of verse 11, in righteousness he judges and wages war. Have you ever thought of Jesus as a man of war? This soppy, pacifist view of our Lord is completely foreign to the New Testament. He's not a cuddly bear or a back pocket genie. Every single unbiblical character of our Lord just doesn't work in this passage, does it? Jesus is the humble lamb and savior. Of course he is. But he's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the warring judge. 
Alexander White, commenting on John Bunyan's holy war, said this. He said, holy scripture is full of wars and rumors of wars and the wars of the Lord, the wars of Joshua and the judges and the wars of David with his and many other magnificent battle songs. Till the best known name of the God of Israel in the Old Testament is the Lord of the hosts, the armies. And then in the New Testament, we have Jesus Christ described as the captain of our salvation. And then the whole Bible is crowned with a book, all sounding with battle cries. Till it ends with that city of peace where they hang the trumpet in the hall, and then they study war no more. But until then, he judges and he wages war. And unlike corrupt human court systems or the woke social justice movements, his judgments are always actually just. First, he reaches a just verdict regarding the beast and his followers, and then he goes to war and he executes that justice. You don't have to turn there, but listen to Paul's words of encouragement to persecuted believers in 2 Thessalonians 1. He tells them in verse 5 that their suffering is a plain indication of God's righteous, that is his just judgment. And then he goes on to say, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When, Paul? Well, he tells us when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He will repay all exactly according to their deeds. Perfect justice. As Mounts notes well, any view of God which eliminates judgment and his hatred of sin in the interest of an emasculated doctrine of sentimental affection finds no support in the strong and virile realism of the apocalypse. So that's his justice. However, John also points out his omniscience, the fact that he knows all things. The beginning of verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire. In chapter 1 and 2 of the book, this analogy indicates that nothing escapes the notice of the conquering king. He knows all things and he sees with piercing clarity. Why are they like flames of fire, asks Charles Spurgeon. Why first to discern the secrets of all hearts? There are no secrets that here that Christ does not see. There is no lewd thought. There is no unbelieving skepticism that Christ does not read. There is no hypocrisy, no formalism, no deceit that he does not scan. As easily as a man reads a page in a book, his eyes are like a flame of fire to read us through and through and to know our innermost soul. By the way, this also means that he's incapable of judgment by deception and fraud. His decisions accord perfectly with reality. Think about it this way. When Jesus Christ comes through the clouds, those alive on earth will mourn because in that moment he will pierce through their consciences, every single one of them. He will so convict the world of sin in that moment 
that they will crumble and disintegrate morally because of their rejection of him. <coughs> Can you imagine being there? No, this is unimaginable. People will be thinking and saying, what's going on? Why are the clouds opening? Who is that? Uh-oh. It's the one we scoffed at. It's the one whom we said, where is the promise of his coming? And now he's here, it's over. No mercy, no grace, no second chance, only retributive justice. John also points out his transcendence. We read from the middle of verse 12. And on his head are many diadems, which are crowns expressing ultimate royalty and authority. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. And I want to ask you a really important favor now. Please, please don't come to me after the sermon and ask me what this name is. <laughs> no one knows except himself. <laughs> the text does, does not even disclose on which part of his body this was written. John saw the name, but it was inscrutable to him. And it's not our prerogative to have this information since it will remain a secret until this future time. When we see him as he is, then perhaps we'll know. But for now, we, we just don't need to because the secret things belong to the Lord. What's the point? He is transcendent. He's beyond comprehension. He's unimaginable in that sense. At the beginning of verse 13, the apostle then describes his vengeance. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Now, some believe that this is a reference to his own blood shed on the cross for the elect. However, the absence of his redemptive work in this particular context and the likely fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy argues way more strongly for reference to the blood of others, his enemies. Listen to Isaiah's words, verse 3 of chapter 63. The prophet says, quoting God, I have trodden the wine trough through alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. This simply previews the slaughter of his enemies with their blood splattering on their clothing and his clothing in the process. That's his vengeance, holy vengeance. But John concludes this majestic description of the conquering king by pointing to his deity. Verse 13 again, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. You need to think John 1.1 when you read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the self-disclosure of God. And the living Word is here literally in the process of fulfilling the written Word concerning His return. The same word that brought creation into existence and flooded the whole world is powerful enough to subdue satanic powers whom the conquering king is about to confront. 
But before we get there, notice another unimaginable feature of the Messiah's arrival, which we could call the armies of the conqueror. Verse 14 is one of the most mind-blowing passages in all of Scripture. John writes, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. The natural question to ask is, are these angels or are these saints? We know that the Bible does indeed speak of angels attending his second coming, right? As Paul said, uh, he'll be revealed with his mighty angels. However, I'm going to argue that the armies in view actually speak of believers. In fact, in light of that, there are three considerations here revealing the identity of the saints. Firstly, their origin, which is heaven. You know, John 14, 3, talking to his disciples, Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. And where is that? Heaven. Of course, we know that angels are there, but so are glorified believers. What about their clothing? John says that these armies will be clothed in fine linen, white and clean, which already in Revelation is closely identified with the Lamb's bride. Look at verse 7 of this 19th chapter. John says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride, His people, has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of who? The saints. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 from verse 12. Paul says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then the third consideration, their transport. That old song, when the saints go marching in, should rather say when the saints come riding in. They were following him on white horses, and although chapter 6 might indicate angels on horses, the picture of people riding here fits the context much better. Whenever I go horse riding, which is rare, I always seem to get stuck with a horse with emotional problems. <laughs> One that constantly tries to throw you off. Not these horses. They're in perfect control, following the Lord. You see, limiting the armies to believers here is appropriate and does not deny the presence of angels on this occasion. Of course they're there. Clearly there will be one, and one is even mentioned in verse 17. But this particular army consists of God's people in the time of the Gentiles. A Jew and Gentile together in the church, along with Old Testament saints and the martyred saints spoken about regularly in Revelation, in other words, every believer who has been glorified up to this point. It's really difficult to fathom, isn't it? That's why I'm saying it's unimaginable. What an encouragement for Christians. Robert Thomas, in his excellent commentary on Revelation, 
says this about the saints, which will include you and me, if you're a true believer, that is. He says, this, this heavenly army, unlike their leader, has no swords or spears. They take no part in the action. They wear no armor because being immortal, they are immune to injury. They are non-combatant supporters of the Messiah as he wages war single-handedly. These are real armies and real horses, not imaginary ones. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 10, the apostle Paul tells us what we will be doing. He says, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, and then he says, and to be marveled at among all who have believed. We will literally be following the conquering king, marveling, watching in amazement as he rides victoriously into battle. Front row seats to the greatest event in human history. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which echoes Hebrews chapter 4, sharper than any two-edged sword. And this simply represents his divine ability to destroy his enemies with his word. Continuing, so that with it he may strike down the nations. These are the rebellious nations made up of rebellious sinners alive at the time of his coming. Those who survive the onslaught of the seal judgments of whom chapter 16 tells us still did not repent of their deeds. After all of that, they still want to hang on to their sin, which speaks to the total depravity of every sinner born in Adam. But he's going to strike them down. He's going to give them the hiding of their lives. And then John looks forward to demonstrate that this also includes his future rule of the nations. And he will, that's future tense in the Greek, he will rule them with a rod of iron. Someone has said, does not mean the leavening of existing governments with Christian principles, the spiritual conversion of countries and empires, leaving them in existence and simply Christianizing them so as to exhibit some of Christ's spirit in their administrations, but the total displacement of all of this world's sovereigns and governments, the taking of all dominion and authority out of the hands of them and putting it in the hands of Christ as the true and only king of the world, the stern, swift judgment that marks the onset of Christ's kingdom will be the pattern of his rule throughout the millennium, which we read about in the next chapter, during his literal thousand-year reign, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron, swiftly judging all sin and instantly putting down all rebellion. Can you imagine that kind of perfect government? No. And where I come from, this is really unimaginable. But then John moves back to the present at the end of verse 15, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Though already implied by the garment dipped in blood, uh, the identity of this terrible work of wrath is now specific. Indeed, this vivid symbol comes from the ancient practice of stomping on grapes as part of the winemaking process. The splattering of the grape juice pictures the pouring out of the blood of Christ's enemies. And in view of this consummation, how pertinent is the invitation in Psalm 2? 
That is the invitation to bow the knee and kiss the sun. While there's yet time to claim the blessing of those who put their trust in him. Once he begins treading the winepress, just as a lifeless grape cannot escape, so will be the case with those who refuse to bow the knee. I love how John's vision completes this first section with a powerful summary description of the conquering king. Verse 16. And on his robe and on his thigh, that is the most visible place for someone mounted on a horse, he has a name written, the third name here, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're told that the the doubling name was a, a practice of the Persians and the Parthians to emphasize the supremacy of their royalties. John courageously adopts this particular device in spite of comparable claims of the Roman emperor responsible for his exile on Patmos. The Messiah alone has rightful claim to the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Deuteronomy 10.17, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Finally, someone worthy to rule. And we will reign with him as joint heirs because of his grace. Amazing. Now that's just the first stage of his return. And already there are only two non-words that can describe what John has seen, especially as it relates to scoffers. Uh Uh-oh. An unimaginable arrival, which takes us to number two, an unconventional supper. Reading from verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. So, So he stands in a prominent place to make this critically important announcement. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. Our Heavenly Father has always fed the birds, right? Matthew 6.26. But now they're about to enjoy the most filling meal they've ever received. Just as Iris enjoyed barbecue all week long up until this point. By the way, if you think about it, there are at least four known suppers in the Bible. Firstly, the supper of salvation. That's alluded to in Jesus' parable in Luke 14. All are invited to partake in salvation, but not all respond. Then there's the Lord's Supper that all who do respond as believers are then to partake in until He comes. In remembrance of His death on the cross. We also have the marriage supper of the Lamb, described so beautifully at the beginning of this 19th chapter. But there's one more, and that is the great supper of God, which can only be described as a feeding frenzy. If you reject the first supper, the second supper will mean nothing to you. This means that since you'll definitely then miss the third supper, you may well be alive at the time of the fourth supper. So depending on your attendance, either you will eat or you will be eaten. By whom? The birds, which fly in mid-heaven, as John says. These are not make-believe birds or symbolic birds. These are real flesh-eating birds, including vultures. 
Listen to Matthew 24 and verse 27 as Jesus describes the same event. He says, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. By the way, Israel is, is known as a bird watcher's paradise. So it's no surprise that the angel is able to call upon so many for this unconventional supper, which is designed to humiliate proud sinners. Remember, grace and mercy is done now. Now is the time for perfect, impartial judgment. John says in verse 18, So that you, the birds and the vultures, that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great, to have one's unburied body left as food for birds is the ultimate indignity, the ultimate humiliation, especially for kings and mighty military commanders. But this horrible fate awaits all the God-hating rebels, the flesh of all men, John says, rich and poor, unknown and famous, strong and weak, all kinds of men. This feeding frenzy judgment is no respecter of persons or situation. This is the great equalizer of all, isn't it? Commentator Joseph Seiss writes about this awful scene. He says, this tells already an awful story. It tells of the greatest of men made food for vultures, of kings and leaders strong and confident, devoured on the field with no one to bury them, of those who thought to conquer heaven's anointed king rendered helpless even against the timid birds, of vaunting gods of nature turned into its cast-off and most dishonored dregs. And what is thus intimated soon becomes reality. All we can say is, uh-oh. You really want to mock the promise of his coming? You really want to live in sin as though this was just a fantasy? I can do what I want. He's not really coming back. That's dangerous, my friends. This is the unconventional supper, which takes us to a third and final escalating stage of the conquering king's return, the unstoppable conquest. The unstoppable conquest, which can really be divided into two subpoints: a foolish assembly and a fixed outcome. This describes for us the personal and direct exercise of Christ's judicial power in crushing the last anti-God forces on earth. But it begins with a foolish attempt to put up some sort of fight against the unbeatable champion. I was thinking about it this week since I'm in the States. When America, USA played the South African rugby team, we beat you guys. I think it was 95 Three. But this is an encouragement. You scored three points. <laughs> the Antichrist and the beast score Zippo. <laughs> That's the point. Look at verse 19. 
John writes, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assemble to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Uh, chapter 16 and verse 16 tells us that this is the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Apparently Napoleon called this valley the greatest battlefield he'd ever seen. Although this gathering will not be limited to the Megiddo Plains, but will encompass the length of Israel. So, so just imagine the scene. A massive army is gathered, and in the sky above them, millions upon millions of birds all licking their beaks, just waiting for the slaughter. In case you weren't sure, the beast here is the Antichrist, the leader of the last and greatest empire in human history. Let me quote Paul's words to the Thessalonians. He says, He is the man of lawlessness. He is the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. In fact, look for a brief moment at Revelation 13. Revelation chapter 13. After his fake death and resurrection to deceive the masses, we're told from verse 4 that they, the people, they worshipped the dragon, that's Satan, because he gave his authority to the beast, the Antichrist, and they, the people, worshipped the beast. And they were saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? The world has never seen such an impressive ruler. Indeed, John Phillips sums up the biblical teaching on this individual. He says, the Antichrist will be an attractive and charismatic figure, a genius, a demon-controlled, devil-taught charmer of men. He will have answers to the horrendous problems of mankind. He'll be all things to all men. He'll be a political statesman, a social lion, a financial wizard, an intellectual giant, a religious deceiver, a masterful orator, gifted organizer. He will be Satan's masterpiece of deception, the world's false messiah. With boundless enthusiasm, the masses will follow him and readily enthrone him in their hearts as the world's savior and God. But as evil... And persuasive as the Satan-filled blasphemer is, he is no match for the conquering king. Back to chapter 19. Who's like the beast and who can wage war with him? You know the answer. You know the answer. John also mentions the kings of the earth. And of course, they're the, the ten who rule, the ten sectors into which Antichrist's worldwide empire is divided. And then he goes on, and their armies assembled, gathered, to make war against him, Christ, who sat on the horse and against his army, who, of course, as I've mentioned, will take no part. This is the inscrutable insanity of sin, uh, which wars away in spite of defeat after defeat after defeat against a holy and unstoppable God. The formidable and seemingly invincible armed might of the beast with all of its firepower awaits the arrival of the sovereign king. But before they can even strike one blow, it's, it's over. 
Indeed, this battle is the laughter of God against the climax of man's arrogance. Listen to Psalm 2 from verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, or as you would say, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Scoffers scoff at his coming. The Lord will scoff at them. That's the foolish assembly which leads to a fixed outcome. Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 8, Paul says that then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will slay with the breath of his mouth, like swatting a fly, squishing an ant, or blowing out a candle. How's he going to do this? Look at verse 20. And the beast was seized, captured, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, <clears throat> by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. All of the power and influence that the Antichrist amassed in Jerusalem and the world with the help of this religious charlatan is put to an immediate end. They're captured with the greatest of ease and thrown alive into the lake of fire, which is the final hell. The ultimate destination of Satan, his angels, and all of the unredeemed. By the way, if you look over at chapter 20 and verse 10, the end of Christ's millennial reign, John tells us that the devil who deceived them, the people, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Don't imagine that hell is temporary. That there's a way to get out. Do not imagine that sinners will be annihilated into non-existence. This is eternal conscious torment. And as the two most evil, vile, blasphemous people who have ever lived, it is only fitting that they be the first to arrive in that awful place. Now the rest who are killed... On this day, will immediately their souls will immediately go into torment in Hades while their flesh is eaten. That is, of course, along with every unbeliever who has died from every age, awaiting their final destination in the lake of fire, which is then executed at the great white throne at the end of chapter 20. Look at verse 21, chapter 19. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Like I said, the most satisfying and filling meal they've ever enjoyed. Describing the almost inconceivable carnage, John Phillips sums this up better than I ever could, so I'm just going to quote him. He writes, Then suddenly it will all be over. 
In fact, there will be no war at all in the sense that we think of war. There will be just a word spoken from him who sits astride the great white horse. Once he spoke a word to a fig tree and it withered away. Once he spoke a word to howling winds and heaving waves and the storm clouds vanished and the waves fell still. Once he spoke to a legion of demons bursting at the seams of a poor man's soul and instantly they fled. Now he speaks a word and the war is over. The blasphemous, loud-mouthed beast is stricken where he stands. The false prophet, the miracle-working windbag from the pit, is punctured and still. The pair of them are bundled up and hurled headlong into the eternal, everlasting flames. Another word. And the panic-stricken armies reel and stagger and fall down dead. Field marshals and generals, admirables, air commanders. Soldiers, sailors, rank and file, one and all they fall. And the vultures descend and cover the scene. Where's the promise of his coming? Are you kidding me? It's right there. Revelation 19. Three escalating stages in the return of the conquering king. Unimaginable arrival. Unconventional supper, unstoppable conquest. The Kilimanjaro, the Mount Everest of Revelation is inscripturated here to address two groups of people in two completely different ways. Indeed, if if you're a Christian, uh, this is what you've been longing for. This is your blessed hope. And and this majestic future event, it's not merely theoretical. Rather, this is designed in the New Testament to produce things like sober-mindedness. Just think, 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near, it's imminent. Therefore, he says, be of sound thinking, sober spirit. What about the pursuit of holiness? Purity. First John 3. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Therefore, purify yourselves just as he is pure. What about hope? First Peter 1.13. We're commanded to fix our hope completely, unreservedly, without hesitation, on the grace to be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's for Christians. We could add to that faithfulness and inexpressible joy, meaning that it's time to stop acting like you were baptized in lemon juice. Whenever the second coming is mentioned in the New Testament in reference to believers, it's in the context of encouragement, comfort, sanctification. We're those who, along with Paul, will love his appearing. Do you long for this? Do you wake up each day and say, this could be it? You've got so much to look forward to. You'll be rescued from the wrath to come and you'll come back with him. Let that sink in. But if you're not a Christian, 
or you profess to be, while your life says otherwise. You're a living example of that sneering question. Where is the promise of his coming? Because you're living like it's not going to happen. Peter answers that in verse 9 of 2 Peter 3. He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness. Then he says, but he is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That is all of his chosen people. If you're still breathing and the dominoes of eschatology have not begun to fall, God is being patient with you. But that patience will run out. It has an end date. John Valfort said it this way, these verses point to the sad conclusion that in the day of judgment it is too late for men to expect the mercy of God. There is nothing more inflexible than divine judgment where grace has been spurned. So let me urge you, if you're here and you're not sure you're a Christian, don't wait a moment longer. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the moment of salvation. Today is the day you can actually receive His grace as a free gift apart from your works while it's still available. When Jesus came the first time, he died on the cross, completely satisfying the wrath of God. He drank up every last drop of the lake of fire for those who would repent and believe on him alone for salvation. What does Paul say in Acts 17 verse 30? After his death, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because... He, God, has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Christ's bodily resurrection tells us that his cross work is completely sufficient to save sinners. But it also tells us that he is coming back to execute terrifying judgment. And so you can either believe in him now as the lamb who was slain, or else he'll be the very one who slays you. And all you'll be able to say in that moment is what? Uh-oh. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, thank you that we can come to your precious, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative word, being confronted with the pinnacle of history in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, for those of us here today who are in Christ, who have turned from sin, who have received your amazing grace and salvation, who have been made alive, been born again to a living hope, May we actually live as those with that hope, pursuing holiness, pursuing the sanctification without which no one will see God. Help us, Lord, to fix our minds completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Oh, how wonderful it is that we get to watch our God and Savior single-handedly destroy evil, destroy the forces of the Antichrist. For those who have not believed, Lord, please convict them. Please use 
the terrifying reality of this passage to bring them to saving faith in Christ, that their sins might be completely forgiven and that they would have no fear of this future judgment, but rather joy, hope, and peace because they would have peace with you, a holy God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.